Welcome to our discussion on SEN provision and the importance of inclusive practice. Uh, SEND is such a broad topic that we can't discuss all themes in depth today, um, but we will focus um, on inclusion and practical strategies that educators can use in their classrooms. So this is such a significant topic because every educator needs to carefully consider how they're going to make a truly inclusive teaching practice. Special educational needs and disabilities can often be sidelined due to a lack of knowledge on inclusive practice for heavy workloads from teachers or because of outdated views on SEND. In this talk, our specialists will advise on some of the most practical and inclusive strategies available to break down barriers to learning and ensure that every child is given equal opportunities to succeed in the classroom. Thank you to all of our expert guests who have joined us today. Um, if we'd like to start off then with some introductions. So um, first of all, Nyla, could you explain who you are? I'm Nyla Khan. I am the head of school in a social, emotional and mental health setting. Thank you. And Asha? Hi, everybody. My name is Asha Karam. I am the head of inclusion for the secondary school at Dubai International Academy, Emirates Hills. Thank you. And Huma? Hi, I'm Huma. I'm an art psychotherapist. Um, I've worked with children in the capacity of an educational therapist um, and uh, for more than a decade as an art psychotherapist. I'm also a caregiver of a 26-year-old uh, who is autistic. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to start, first of all, with our first question. We're jumping right in. So as practitioners, what does inclusion mean to you and your school, if you are working in a school or if you're working in your own um, personal setting? Can I start first of all, then, with Asha? What does inclusion mean to you? So basically, inclusion for me and for our DI community at the moment is ensuring how we can eradicate barriers to learning for students with learning needs. So kind of embracing their capacities and capabilities and really helping them to, the re to reach to their full potential. So our DIA model for inclusion is celebrating differences, nurturing abilities and transforming communities. Uh, and this is where our sort of support strategies pull it around as well to really help the children in our school really embrace who they are, nurture their abilities to kind of help them feel more empowered about, you know, what they do and their learning, and then to kind of educate the community around us, so parents, teachers, uh, the students, to really then transform our community and make it a really inclusive learning environment. Excellent, thank you. Um, Huma? Well, I, I'm going to, uh, you know, um, address this as, as a parent and also as a professional. So for me, inclusion means equal opportunity. Uh, no discrimination on the basis of ability. But having said that, um, it should not just be lip service. Uh, there needs to be the right kind of resources and support to, uh, you know, if you're taking in kids with differences, uh, then you uh, will, uh, you know, need to have the necessary resources to support them. So that's basically what it means to me. Excellent. As a parent, I think uh, I, I've been through the, the the process of jumping from school to school and um, was not able to find the, the right fit for my son for years. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to to learn a little bit more about that and, and how that experience has kind of affected mm. you. Um, and Nyla? So for me, it meaning obviously it incorporates both what Huma and Asha have already said, but it's to create an educational environment where all students, regardless of whatever their background is, whatever their ability is, whatever their needs are, they feel valued and respected. And I think 
they, they're given equitable opportunities to succeed, you know, which is really, really important. I think we need to appreciate every child, regardless of, you know, what needs they're coming in with and to make them feel confident enough to be able to ask for support and when, and accept the support that is being given to them. I totally agree, it shouldn't be lip service. I think we need to look at them and work together with everybody, all the stakeholders, so that they actually achieve to the best of their ability. Um, so yeah, that, that that's what inclusion means to me and to my school. Excellent, thank you. Okay, we're jumping in with our first question then. Um, and this is directed then to Naila. Um, can you give an example of when you have successfully embedded SEND specific strategies to enable inclusion? So I'm going to talk about, so I've just um, in April became head of school, but before I was head of school as a classroom teacher, I was given a class where um, they were very um, behavior heavy children in there um, because I was came from a behavior background. And the first thing I think is really, really important to do um, for people with SEND or for inclusion to actually succeed is to sort the behavior out. When you have a class of 30, if you have, if you don't sort out the behavior in your class, I don't think you can deal with anything else because you're always firefighting. And so once I'd settled the behavior and everybody knew what was expected of them, at that point, I felt that I could actually put in a lot of strategies to help the children in the class, regardless of whatever the need they had. So I had children who were autistic. I had children who had, who have ADHD in there. I had children who had English as an additional language. And then the, you know, the whole spectrum of ability in there as well. So once the behavior was sorted, what I did was, through my seating plan, you know, having spoken to the special educational needs uh, coordinator, I grouped them in such a way where I knew that I could then ask specific questions um, to children who were struggling to have a voice. Um, for the um, ch with children on the spectrum, I had on the board, I used my board quite well in the sense that I wrote everything down about what they were going to do. So the structure was there. So they felt comfortable. They knew exactly what they needed to do. I had uh, for sort of little breaks for children who had ADHD. So they had to hand out materials and, you know, they, you know, they, they knew that, you know, they could be okay by standing up and going around. So I never gave out all the, um, all, all the things I needed to give out, all the resources at the beginning, I always, always made sure that there were breaks in there, I had keywords written up, you know, and I did that for every single lesson. So the children knew exactly where they stood. They knew exactly what was coming and that made them feel um, secure. They felt safe. They felt that they could um, speak in a class. But I also spoke to them all um, and, it, and it takes time, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, but I spoke to every child and said to them, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think that helped build um, the confidence that the students needed. And, you know, I don't think you always have to ask people questions. I don't think you always have to make sure that they participate. But when they feel they're happy to do it, if they're not feeling judged, I think they will then come out with... Um, the answers that they need be happy to make mistakes you know it was like make a mistake you know we put quizzes in you know you I did a lot lo lots of things that made the lesson a little bit bitty 
but it all joined together um, in, a, in a really strange way. And was it successful? I think so, because they all achieved what they needed to do at the end of the GCSE. Um, but what I did find was that when I've come into this role as head teacher of the SEMH setting, everything is actually geared towards every child. And you see how many children are slipping through the net in a mainstream school because children mask so well, so well, when they feel like, you know, I can't say this, so I'm going to misbehave or I'm going to go quiet or I'm going to say that I feel unwell. But in my setting now, we have one-to-one -one teaching or two-to-one teaching and we gear it all towards the child. So they're doing different exams. They're doing different exam boards. They're doing, you know, more hands-on stuff. And I can see that that is true inclusion. You know, I'm not saying mainstream. It's very difficult in a mainstream. We've got 30 children in a classroom. But, you know, we've got to bring a little bit more of that into mainstream. Are there any other thoughts about how we kind of successfully embed SEND strategies? So I think Naila made some really fantastic points. I think the systematic approach that she used within her classroom, um, and like I know Homa was also talking about, you know, her experience as a parent and how she's gone from school to school and she's looking for schools with resources. I think teacher expertise is the biggest resource that we can have. So it was Nyla's expertise of really using, you know, small but systematic approaches towards, you know, how her learners are, getting to know them, sorting out the behavior concerns first, and then kind of that, that grouping and that systematic grouping of, say, classroom seating, uh, which really kind of... Uh, felt the kids more secure, they, it made them feel more belonged. Uh, and then obviously that security and that belongingness led to learning. Um, so I think that systematic approach, what Nyla kind of talked about is something that uh, if it's embedded within the classroom culture, it can really make a difference to the learning of the students. So those strategies, Nyla, that you shared were fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I think both um, Asha and uh, Nyla have made some great points, but I would like to add that um, behavior is actually a symptom of something underlying. Um, and I speak more uh, within the context of, of primary school children or younger children. There is like a high percentage of kids, up to almost 20% of kids who have sensory processing issues. And those kids will manifest behaviors that look like oppositional behaviors, for instance. And for an unskilled teacher, it is very difficult to distinguish with, you know, what is sensory and what is not. So it, it's quite possible that there are certain strategies are being used that will actually make the child feel more unsafe than safe in the school environment. So uh, essentially, uh, like Nyla said, training, training, training. The, the teachers need to be trained and to have the skill and the knowledge to, to first of all, um, distinguish behaviors that are, you know, what's the source of the behaviors uh, and then uh, address those behaviors or like um, uh, Naila and Asha said, sort those behaviors. I think that is key uh, to true inclusion. I, I think the problem in, in mainstream education comes from the fact that there is a lack of training. And, you know, when they're, when they're looking at training, they're, they're training for, say, Ofsted or they're training for um, more of the children that, you know, they say and they do mean it when they're saying they're looking at inclusion. But what, what's missing is that initial training when, you, when you're training to be a teacher of actually there are this many needs. And it's quite a scary concept to have 30 children sitting in front of you and you're, and you're, and you're looking at them going, 
what what are we doing here you know what are these children's needs and if you don't work with everybody and i include parents in that you don't get to know the whole child and you know you're right behavior is it's it's a great way to mask especially for boys and i'm I, I kind of they find it as they get older they don't want to look like they're not understanding the work you know so what do they do they they misbehave um they become a little bit more of oh people can laugh with them so they feel like they still belong in the classroom but in a different way and i think right from teacher training we need to learn these are the characteristics because as as much as you're saying homer that you know that they, you know, behavior resistant to the characteristics of each um, condition does show up. And I think, you know, if you can see what the uh, characteristics are, then you can start piecing that jigsaw together to make it um, valuable for the child, because it mm -hmm. is about the child. It's not, it's, you know, and for the parents to actually join in and, you know, um, any other therapist that needs to work, all stakeholders need to work together so that we have the team yeah. around the child or a group of children. You know, yeah. it's hard work. It's it's not easy because there are a lot of children who need it, but at least we can start by trying to understand characteristics and have some strategies available to work with the, with the children to make them successful. Right, no, you make a great point about um, including parents. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, because uh, at least in, in this part of the world, there is this um, huge thing about denial, not, yes. not, not actually uh, accepting or acknowledging that the child needs help uh, because we are in a very uh, fiercely competitive uh, environment, especially here in Singapore and the Asian countries. Um, and, and the goal for parents is mostly, you know, just getting the, you know, acing the exams and uh, the behavior and everything is sidelined completely. So getting the parents to acknowledge that there is an issue and uh, the support doesn't just uh, end at school. It has to go on at home as well. So yes, to work um, as a team. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I think there's been some great points raised here and we're actually kind of leading into our second question really nicely because it does, we are then looking at how does, um, <clears throat> how do these inclusive practice work then in different international settings um, because of some of the barriers potentially to acknowledging um, SEND. So our second question was, <clears throat> SEND provision varies dramatically in different international settings. Why do you think it is important for all educators to encourage and drive inclusive practices? And Asha, could you lead with this question, please? Sure. Uh, thank you for the question, Claire. So I feel international education settings are an exciting place to practice and advocate for inclusion. It brings in so many different diverse communities uh, together with varied backgrounds, cultural understanding, sensitivities, and belief systems. Uh, so like uh, Homa was just you know, sharing her experience about you know, the part of the world that she's in, the acceptability and the advocacy within parents, the understanding is not there. So it brings in that kind of environment to kind of advocate and really push for inclusion. So it may have its advantages being in different contexts. So I'll just go through in terms of what these advantages are and how can we look for advantages in the international setting that we are. Mm -hmm. So the home country of where the international educational setting is based 
does influence the functional dimensions of inclusive practice. So based on local education policy, systems and approaches, all of that will impact how we practice inclusion within the educational setting. Um, for example, though SEND is commonly used as an umbrella term to address the barriers and needs of children globally, in the UAE, we use the term people of determination or students of determination. Now, since the introduction of this term a few years ago, there has been a complete shift in the mindsets of how people in the region view people or students with disabilities or SEND. So the support provision, though, continues to be personalized and evidence-based. However, the UAE's move towards the shift in mindset has empowered the educational settings here to understand the significance of inclusion in the region. Uh, and this has empowered educators like myself and sends out a clear message to all educators that inclusion is just not the responsibility, say, of the inclusion team at a school, but it's a holistic whole school responsibility and a collaborative effort from all the stakeholders that work with that child, including parents, teachers, external support uh, agencies, any other external uh, you know, support uh, uh, systems that the child visits, say, for example, any sporting events. So all of that, we have to come collaborative to actually make these strategies work for the child. Uh, Another benefit of local curriculum policies is how it may broaden the scope of inclusion practice. So different international settings may have students with diverse backgrounds, as we mentioned earlier, including the local and expat populations attending. So though curriculums in two different national international settings may be the same, how they may be delivered based on the local setting may therefore differ for the diverse populations. So an example, again, in the context of the UAE, it is significant that Arabic language is embedded within the international curriculums offered here. So this broadens the scope of inclusive practice and does not limit it only to students with SEND needs, but also encompasses the expat populations of Arabic language learners, engaging them with the rich Emirati culture, understanding more about you know, their own culture while they're doing that through their moral ed topics. Um, so these are great opportunities, I think, for cultural understanding, inclusive practices. And so I feel like inclusion, inclusive practice within international context is a more wider sort of a concept and just isn't limited to send practice uh, here. Mm -hmm. uh, so where local policies are still developing, I feel. So when policies like for the UAE, it's developed and we know what we're doing and it kind of combines well with our practice, there may be countries where or regions where it's still developing. In certain scenarios like that, I think more guidance needs to be driven from the curriculum guide, uh, guidebooks and say, for example, the SEND code of practice in the UK. So these should be driving policy and decision-making then. Um, so getting back into those local policies and seeing how the curriculum guidebooks are kind of guiding practice is also something we need to look at if the policies within the country that you're practicing in is still emerging. So basically to conclude, inclusive practice may therefore differ based on the international context that they're operating in. However, the push for inclusive learning as a systematic approach is more so important in international educational settings, given the diverse population that we may serve. And like I said, and this is a uh, this is something that's been coming out of our conversations, it is a collaborative effort. It is significant to support the parents, student and teacher communities with the awareness and understanding of diverse student yeah. needs and strongly, but at the same time, empathetically power the overall school community with this yeah. knowledge. Yeah, 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 absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm totally with you on that. Unfortunately, Singapore is still quite behind uh, uh, in, in all of this. There, the, the shift of mindset, I think that is the, the key element. Um, and, and that's the struggle here. We have a very, very clear divide between uh, the special schools and and the local educational uh, system, mm -hmm. and unless there is a a push from the you know the side of the policy, 
things are not going to change. And then we have these international schools where I could literally count on my fingertips. This, uh, you know, there's maybe one or two schools that are inclusive and those two are unaffordable. So there's a real struggle here to, I mean, inclusion is, is it, it's a far cry from, from inclusion here in Singapore, unfortunately. I think that because the, the mindset is, it, there's a lack of, um, I would say, empathy, unfortunately. Sorry for being very direct, but uh, it is coming from a place of uh, being a parent and having gone through the system uh, and struggled through the system. So I think, Huma, then in, in that case, like I said, where policies are still emerging and if you feel they're not there yet, schools do need to go back and look at their curriculum policies. So say, for example, in the UK, we have the SEND code of practice. In the IB curriculums, we have the inclusive and access arrangement policies. Looking back at those policies is important for the schools then to yes. see what can guide practice within the curriculum. Because if they're, not, if they're a specific school offering a specific curriculum, say a British curriculum or IB curriculum, then they have to follow through with these guidelines and they have to kind of really meet those, uh, you know, um, those policies and procedures to, to run and function as a school with that curriculum. So precisely, but the will has to be there, right? The will has to be there. If there is no will to change, then nothing's going to happen, right? So the will has to be there. If there is no desire for a change, then, then it's not going to happen. I think, though, um, I think it's not always just about the curriculum and um, things like that. I think also there's a fear factor from parents. You know, they, they, there is a stigma attached to having children um, for, for, for some parents. It's, it's a worry or what are people going to say about my child are they going to judge my child you know are they going to think they're less of um less capable than you know the other children around and i think it's educating parents and helping them to understand that actually if a child is going to develop at um a different rate or a different time to, than others it's not such a big problem um you know you have to start um saying you know working with the parents with the community to you know allow them to understand that actually if we do get these things right the confidence that builds up in a child or, or, or in their child or in the students or children working together it, it it's it's phenomenal what that can actually do because not everybody wants to be a doctor and I and I and I choose that really carefully. It's the want. Not everybody wants to be a doctor. You know, some people are very happy in being something very working with things that are very hands on because that's their that's what they're good at. And I think that's what we need to explain. You know, I think schools can actually they make a huge difference because they're the ones that can actually pull the parents in and discuss it with the parents and have parent forums and you know talk to them about what their fears are why are they worried why don't they want their you know why are they not choosing these settings for their children you know and I think it's educating the parents and everybody else around them um, and actually the teachers as well because I think you know when you're following a curriculum or when you're following anything it's really easy because you're, you're just going right I'm going to take out a book I've got to follow these things you know, as long as I put these things in my classroom as long as I can show I'm doing these strategies it's fine but it isn't because if it's not getting through to the child then actually mm. what was the use of it you know exactly. and and yeah. that's what I think I think you know it's about educating not just the child but mm. everybody else around them as well, you know? And I mean, I don't know, I think I might've swayed a little bit from the question, but I think 
you have to remove the stigmas that are in a lot of the Asian countries, meaning my parents from India. And mm -hmm. I know from that that, you know, you know, you hide things and you think, why? Because you can actually have such confident children by actually allowing them to progress at their pace. Yes, yes. Absolutely. We've actually seen some great examples here uh, in Dubai and especially in my school that we've seen kids coming in, uh, you know, from different schools and different environments and different countries and coming in and being really shy and not sort of vocal about, you know, their learning needs and who they are. But then because they see the community so openly talking about it and really kind of saying, oh, OK, you know, we're celebrating Dyslexia Awareness Day today. We're going to celebrate, you know, we're going to have an ADHD unconference today. So I think kids are coming out and saying, OK, yeah, I have ADHD. It's fine. I have some challenges, but I'm getting over them. So I think it's how how the community kind of perceives and kind of portrays this, these perspectives really transform to the kids. So it's the children then who feel more empowered or with the shyness of the community, do they kind of draw away and say, oh, I need to hide this from everybody. So it's, it, I think the schools do play a very important role in the education of teachers, the, the parents, the students, all of them together to say, look, you know what, we're in this together, we're in this journey together. You know, I get yeah. it, you're probably not the strongest at this, but then you're strong at this. So let's yeah. see, whatever you find challenging, how can we use your strengths to get over these challenges and these barriers that you're facing? So these kind of ongoing communication with the community, with parents, with it's hard work like Nyla mentioned earlier collaborative approach that we have to do it is, hard, it is hard work it takes in a lot of our time and capacity but I think there is just no other way unless we collaborate together as all stakeholders together for that specific child and have that holistic provision it, there's no getting around it everybody has to be on the same page doing exactly the same thing yeah, I think that's an amazing point, Asha. It's really interesting to hear some of the things that you're doing then in your schools kind of break down those barriers and and to make that um more uh to make parents more aware and, and students feel more com comfortable and kind of talking about these issues and owning them as well yes. um so that moves on to our final question and um first of all whom is going to lead on this so um what else can educators do to help include and advocate for SEND students in their classrooms I know you're talking kind of from a personal perspective here Huma but yeah what else can educators do to help and adv advocate for SEND students well I think um, I, um, I, Asha and uh, Naila have covered the basic points that you know um, uh, you have to come at it from not just you know one single perspective it has to be uh, training, awareness, knowledge, skill building, um, and just a, a common goal. I think we need to put our children first um, and uh, create awareness, have conversations, exposure. Uh, uh, for one thing, like for instance, here in Singapore, you won't see many uh, special needs children um, in, a, in, in the environment, in the society. Uh, uh, I think uh, Dubai, uh, Asha, you're based in Dubai, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. I've actually been hearing really good things um, about that, that shifted mindset that you were talking about and just using, you know, for instance, a change in the vocabulary, for instance, hmm. uh, people of determination, just that single, you know, the, that phrase by itself. And that tells you how the, the mindset is, is shifting. So basically, I think it's, it's not just one thing. It's, it's a combination of factors uh, that have to come together to make that difference. Uh, but certainly, I mean, um, I haven't been through the teacher training, um, but I think even within the edu uh, education system uh, where, you know, you're training the teachers, there has to be more emphasis on, um, uh, you know, 
including, uh, I, I don't know, do you have a module or do you have like a whole, a whole semester on special needs? Because I don't think there is enough. Uh, yes, you can do professional development uh, and you continue to do that. But uh, having said that, I think it's uh, it should also form a very important part of the curriculum for teacher training as well. I totally agree. I think, you know, for, it, it should start from teacher training um, mm -hmm. and then you can have your professional development um, yeah. throughout your career as a teacher because you've got to be aware of all the different things that are coming in, you know, all the different technologies, the different um, resources that you should be able to use. I also think displays, I know it sounds really quite basic, but I think displays are really, really important. Um, we've put up... Um, famous people in, in all in the corridors of uh, famous people who have different conditions, you know. And mm. I've noticed that the children actually stand by, read it and, you know, smile and walk away. It's like, oh, it's okay to have that. You know, it's okay to be ADHD because you can actually be really, really successful, you know. Um, but I totally agree with you, Huma. I think, you know, I think the training should be throughout your career as a teacher, an educator, anybody working with children, um, with young adults, it has to go all the way through starting from teacher training. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. I think um, we've raised some really, really good points. And I think a big, you know, central theme of what you've talked about here is that that collaborative approach from, from the school community parents and then that really helps kind of provide that environment for students to feel included and and to flourish is there anything else that anybody wants to add here that feel that they wanted to say that they feel they haven't been able to say yet can i can i just say i think one of the other things that is really really important is positive reinforcement mm -hmm. i think the more positive you are with the children regardless of whether they have special educational needs or not it gives them that self of worth and I think that's what builds confidence. And, I, and I've always said a child with confidence will flourish beyond belief because they believe in themselves. So I think the positive reinforcement has to be throughout their time in education. In secondary, when I when I go through the induction presentations for teachers and I go through any, any presentation with teachers about any of the learning diverse needs, my last slide, a teacher's looks really very, very, you know, quickly that, okay, the last slide is come, coming. The last strategy that I tell them in secondary school is rapport building, rapport building, rapport building. You have to have a relationship with the student. And trust me, when you have that, the toughest of students will, will go beyond, above and beyond to make sure that they, you know, they're, they're doing their best. They're really trying to please you. You know, they're, they're children, you know, the adolescents or young children, they really want to please their teachers. They really want to be liked. They really want to feel belonged in the community that they are. So I kept, I keep telling teachers, especially with all your students, it's great, but especially with your students with diverse needs, a rapport with them and, you know, showing that care and understanding and just, you know, a little joke here and there, you know, when they've done something and you feel that, okay, I can't, you know, positively reinforce that, I have to reprimand, but giving them a warning sign with a little joke here and there will really build that confidence and that belonging. So that's my last slide for every presentation that I do at school. So I, I think that's such a great strategy for anybody who's working with children, uh, adolescents, young children, that you have to have a relationship, a personal rapport building relationship with the students. Yeah, I agree. And may I just add that I, I always say that children are not born to displease adults. They're doing it because there is something going on, whether it's happening at home or within the school environment. So observe, observe, keep your eyes open, look at triggers, see what's happening. The school should be a safe space for our children, for any child. 
because for some children the home is not a safe space so there's a lot going on always right it's not just the child mm -hmm. alone in the school there, there's a lot of baggage sometimes that comes with each child so try to make and and, and, and asha your point about that rapport building you know being uh positioning perhaps the teacher as an attachment figure within the school i think um uh yeah that that's that can do some amazing uh, stuff emotionally uh, for the children as well. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thank you so much, everybody, for your time. It's been such an interesting and rich discussion. Um, so we're going to finish our record here. Um, I'm just going to open this up a little bit. Thank you so much. Um, you. I really enjoyed. This is the first record that I have done that I have led on. And um, it was so wonderful to see a female-led um a really interesting discussion about such an important topic for educators i really appreciate your time